0: It's about 10.30, so we'll go ahead and uh, get started with a a word of prayer. So, Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the the truth of your word and that you have shown us how you use your people to bless others, and we pray, Lord, that you would grant us um, deeper wisdom and insight into how um, you have appointed us in our respective vocations to serve our neighbors in Jesus name, we pray amen okay, so welcome everybody. We are uh, continuing our study, world upside down through the book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter six and uh We are going to be, Acts chapter 6, especially after some of these other chapters, is a really short chapter. So um, with any luck and God's grace, we're going to get through the whole chapter today. It's only 15 verses, and I actually want to spend most of our time with the first seven verses. And um, to begin, I want to ask you uh, a question, um, something that has been raised with current events, which is this. When you think of essential service, an essential service, what comes to mind? And before you answer that, I want to share with you um, a nice article that uh, I came across from Gene um, who is uh, um, a well known Lutheran uh, cultural commentator and, and theologian. Let's share it for you. Here. Um, that's not the one I wanted. This one. Okay. Um, can everybody see that? The vocation and the epidemic article by Gene V. Um, and he, he gets into this article uh, about how, how this whole thing, and especially the, um, the social distancing and these different things that have been put in, into place, really highlight uh, different aspects of vocation, our callings. And I wanted, I wanted to draw attention especially to this uh, passage. He says, to be sure, our economic employment is one facet of our vocations, the epidemic has turned some of the ways that we look at work, whether our own or that of others, upside down. Huh. Befitting our study here. For example, the quarantine shutdowns have created a, a distinction between essential and non essential workers, with the former being allowed to still work despite the quarantines, and the latter being required to stay home. Someone made the observation that many of the good jobs people went to college for turn out to be non-essential, whereas the lower status, blue-collar jobs, turn out to be what's really essential. That's an overstatement, of course, since many highly trained professions, such as doctors, nurses, and medical researchers, are deemed essential, and many blue-collar workers, such as those in the restaurant industry, are not allowed to work but the epidemic has forced us all to appreciate the vocation of grocery store stockers, warehouse employees, food processors, farmers, truck drivers, utility crews, cleaners, and in general, those with what Mike Rowe calls dirty jobs that the rest of us depend on for our very lives. Uh, it's a real nice uh, article, I commend it to you there, um, but what? how has this whole, um, and I'll send you the link in the chat, um, put it this way, before this all started, what would you have said were some essential jobs, essential services, and how has this, this whole thing changed your perspective on that? You go ahead and just uh, speak up if you have any thoughts. Make sure that your mic isn't uh, muted. Or you can also uh, send in via the, via the chat. Oh, hi. Elizabeth is joining us. Good morning, Elizabeth. What, what do you think of his point of that, uh, you know, this is kind of refigured, reconfigured our, our sense of what is essential and given us hopefully a greater appreciation for dirty jobs and, and blue collar work and so forth. Things that maybe weren't, uh, regarded in such high esteem. before.
1: Well, back to your, you, you, your first question. I'm surprised how many things aren't essential. Like mm-hmm. I would have thought some things like, um, some of the other, uh, um, medical things that are being not done, like you can't go to the dentist, the chiropractor, physical therapy, um, even other uh, like my brother had heart surgery, he can't see a doctor. Right. His our cuban clinic is shut down. It's like those it seem like they should be pretty <laughs> essential, you know. But it's 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 a it's it's amazing in a crisis where it's like yeah, you know you're you're probably not going to die, but these people might might die so this kind of triage sense is like yeah really stark i think yes you know? and to, th- to think that you know how many people are hurting who aren't, who aren't working like i i never thought my dentist would be the one i'd be you know what i mean like yeah all those hygienists and office workers like right and, work, and it's hard to work from home on on people's teeth. It's like right. I, I, unless your own your own your own family. I yeah, guess. unless you
0: want to become like Tom Hanks and Castaway, and uh, you know just do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I well. think for those sorts of things, the dentist is still available. But yeah, <laughs> others of you thoughts uh, on this uh, essential and how this has, whole thing has changed your your perspective on.
2: Um then uh, a son of Martha is defined by Kipling, you know, one that works on the practical things, including the sewage treatment operator, nights, weekends, (laughs) you name it. But to say, you know, joining together and being led in in Bible study or worship, I mean, that's an essential service.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone
2: else care to chime in? Um, yeah, I've got a little little side
1: here. I actually work in the department that does the testing. Oops, am I there?
0: Yeah, you're there. I, oh,
1: I went black. I mean, our department actually does the COVID testing in the laboratory, but because all the other routine medical procedures have been cut, mm-hmm. we had to cut our staff. So I took a voluntary furlough for six weeks now.
0: Yeah,
2: because we only need so many people to run the COVID test. So sure, right? So I'm yeah. on location.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's just really it's
0: it's startling how far that's extending, even to those even to those labs that are doing these tests. Um, Pete chimes in on the chat and says, "Our community howls every night at 8 p.m. in honor and appreciation of all their work and commitment." You mean like a wolf howl? Like, oh, all right. Yep. Nope whatever floats your boat, but, uh, yeah, I mean,
2: that's, uh, uh, like a dog howled at the coronet,
0: uh, <laughs> trumpets the other day. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I think people have been banging pots around here a little bit, but, um, uh, and, uh, the, Matt adds not to be confrontational, but if I'm being honest, I'm just done with the whole conversation of essential or anything else associated with this virus. Fair enough. Yeah. And I think making those distinctions even is, is frustrating. Um, well, then, let's use that as a good uh, segue into our, our text here. From
1: Wait, 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 Pastor. Sarah has to say something. Oh, hey, Sarah. Happy birthday, by the way. Um, just got in here.
2: Um, just wanted to say something. I've been so impressed by the grocery store clerks. Um, every time I've gone into the grocery store, how happy they are,
1: how cheerful,
0: upbeat. Um, they seem to be more actually chatty and friendly, and it's really strange to think that something like that could be putting their
2: life at risk, but it really is. And they're being um, so upbeat about it and being so calm. And it's just been a great experience going to the grocery store and like seeing them in this kind of new role that they've taken on providing us with food and just being so grateful for it.
0: Right. right. Well, and it is, it's a great demonstration of vocation and the doctrine of vocation. And uh, we'll get more into that with, with our study this morning. So um, go ahead. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter six, and uh, I want to start by reading um, the first half of this passage, verses one through seven. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, as nomenclatures use, Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Okay, whereas when it says the Hebrews, these would be the Jewish. Jewish believers. But both of these are among uh, the Christians, the early Christians. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and uh, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so there is a lot going on already just in these um, first few... First, uh, in these first few verses, and uh, we're just gonna kind of walk through it verse by verse. And to start with, number two on your handout, and uh, see if I'm able to share that. There we go. Um, spiritual growth doesn't preclude mundane conflict. Spiritual growth doesn't preclude mundane conflict. Well, what I mean by that is we're, we're seeing how it says in um, these days the disciples were increasing in number. The church is thriving and growing. The Holy Spirit is doing incredible things among the people, and yet, in the midst of all of that, you have kind of this wet blanket of, well, but some people were still complaining about they weren't they were getting passed over in the daily distribution. And to me, I guess it's again a little bit comforting just to see even in this the the stupendous early history of the church, there is this these kind of um, basic conflicts, the mundane sort of stuff that still happens to churches. And it comes up again and again in the New Testament. James 5, James alludes to this. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Um, This kind of grumbling and and getting upset over petty and not so petty things uh, has continued because the church is not only saints, it's also sinners and that's still going to to be there. Um, Regardless of whether or not this particular um, issue was justified, it's hard to say in this situation, except, I mean, they do seem to grant it a a measure of justification of the fact that they do something about it. But it also made me think of in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah summons the people of God to this good work, and there's this great um, moment where they're all working together, Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah said to the people, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Yeah! Everybody's working together. This is awesome. We're all of one mind and one heart. We've got that homothumadon that we talked about. But then it says... When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Harib, uh, Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What's this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king wah, wah. so it's it kind of it goes hand in hand as the the people of God are moving together and uh, going forward under under his blessing under his guidance. it's inevitable that issues are going to rise, whether it be coming from the outside or even from within, as still those kind of mundane conflicts arise. So I guess I find some comfort in that, but I don't know. Any of you uh, have, have thoughts on that?
2: Yep. I don't have a picture up right now. Hmm.
0: No. Okay. Well then let's, let's go on. Uh, So number three on your handout. So we see there's this initial conflict, um, but then it says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You notice this is kind of like one of your first voters meetings. Okay. You've got the 12 are calling together all the disciples like, okay, guys, we've got to have an impromptu voters meeting. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, number three on your handout, ministry of the word is set apart from other vital duties. Um, here, Peter is really, um, well, I guess it's not just Peter, it's the, the whole of the Apostles. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables they're not uh, trying to set up a a sort of hierarchy or gradation per se that okay the ministry of the word is so much better than serving tables they're just being frank and honest about the distinctions that are made that here the ministry of the word or what sometimes uh in later theological parlance we call the office of the holy ministry it's set apart from other vital duties And this is the office, what the apostles are alluding to is the office that Jesus himself established. Um, The office of pastor, or sometimes it's called overseer, or even elder, which gets really confusing because when we talk about elders in the church, it's more akin to what the New Testament, in the Lutheran church anyway, it's more akin to what um, the the New Testament talks about in terms of deacons, okay? So this can really get you a little bit um, confused here. But uh, you see this within the letters of the New Testament. As Paul writes to 1, in First Timothy, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, the Greek word there is episkopos, he desires a noble task. He's talking about pastor, the ministry of the word, as the apostles put it here. Or again, in Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to why to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this distinction is made, this office is set apart, in order to serve, to build up the people of God, in order to um, proclaim the word, in order to administer the sacraments. So um, in our Augsburg Confession, Lutheran Confession of Faith, so that we may obtain this faith, that is the faith in Christ that makes us righteous the ministry of preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted through the word and sacraments as through instruments, the Holy spirit is given. So Jesus, um, uh, institutes this office of the ministry. He, he calls the apostles and they become the forerunners, uh, to in, in the ministry of the word to continue carrying it forth. Um, but it's not the only work that the church is given to do. It's not the only ones who are doing good work. It's just their, Particular vocation, my particular vocation is to publicly serve the people of God by proclaiming the Word of God and and administering the sacraments. Um, This is an area that has continued to um, be a source of um, dispute and controversy among Christians and within our own church body, um, particularly when um, the uh, pastoral office has seemed to set over and against other callings and vocations, as though they were somehow um, less important or less vital in terms of of God's work in the world. Um, We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but are there um, questions or comments about, you know, the office of the ministry or what's called here the ministry of the word and um, the particular elements that are accorded to it and the, the role and responsibilities of it? I'll give you just a second if you want to throw something in the chat or speak up.
1: Well, got nothing <laughs> all right um so, so pastor you're 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 saying that that one is not elevated over the other but that there's a separation of them right right does that does does by separating them though does that elevate the service of the, of the word or the preaching of the, of the word above the other ones right uh-huh. so like, is it truly separate and equal?
0: <laughs> I mean, so this is the question. It's just, um, and what our culture, our contemporary society really struggles with is that it discerns that any distinctions inherently is making a value judgment. Okay? So if we say that there are differences among people or among callings, then that must mean that you're saying that one is better than the other, one is more important or more valued by God, et cetera. And that's not the, not the gist that we get in the scriptures. The scriptures hold both of these things in tension, where on the one hand, there's emphatically distinctions to be made, distinctions in office, distinctions in personality, distinctions in you know, man and woman uh, at the most fundamental kind of level. And we um, perceive that as being somehow a value judgment, whereas God says, no, this is I have um, made these distinctions for the sake of everyone to bless and serve my creatures. Um, so, yeah, it is separate and, and equal um, in, in the sense that all are equal in the sight of God, but um, we've been given, in uh, um, the horizontal realm, different vocations to serve for the sake of our, for the sake of our neighbors. Okay. Does that help clarify a little bit? Um, Pete points out in his uh, Pete way, these guys have obviously were not trained in Lutheran colleges or seminaries. You don't know that for sure. Actually, but uh, assuming that that's not the case, yeah, no, I mean, these uh, the, the they got the best instruction of all, they got three years with Jesus, and now they're starting their vicarage as they're going out in, in the book of Acts and pointing other offices. But no, it's fair enough. And the way that we in the LCMS, in particular, do pastoral formation, um, it's not unique by any means, um, but it's, it's not the way that it has to be. And um, I'm looking down at at uh, the Wolves, and Carla grew up in Africa. And the church in Africa um, has done different ways um, for the formation of, of pastors and preachers. And oftentimes, in what we call the, the third world, um, there's there's a need for it to, a more of a, an apprentice model. So the way that we might form um, people in the skilled trades is the way that um, pastors have most commonly been formed through, through the ages. So Um, It's great to have a seminary. It's great to have this education, but it's not the only way that it, that it has to happen.
2: My point is that there are so many expectations on uh, pastors and teachers that stretch far beyond what we're, what we're seeing here in this text, this differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're just, you're just expected to be able to, you know, swab the floors and, and stoke the furnace and, Right. All the other things, ring the bells.
0: <laughs> figure out how to work YouTube.
2: <laughs> yeah, figure out how to work YouTube. Right. You know. Yeah. And, uh, it does pull you away from, oftentimes pulls you away from things that you really ought rather to be doing.
0: Well, that's where I think a lot of times it's incumbent on pastors. We pastors sometimes are, um, we, we get a complex and we think we have to do all this stuff. And the reality is we don't, and in fact, we shouldn't, right? We should be devoting ourselves to um, the ministry of the word. And insofar as there's other things that we can delegate and um, equip and encourage the people of God to help with, we should do that. And, you know, I'll just confess, if you haven't already figured that out about me, I'm not always great about that. I'll, I'm more um, inclined to be the kind of guy who like, I'll just do it. I'll take care of it myself. And um, my wife knows this very well of me. <laughs> but... Uh, but It's something that I continue to to struggle with and and to work on.
2: Well, I think it's a vital role for the elders and the trustees to know what their uh, jobs are and for you to be able to delegate that and have confidence that once you turn it over, they're going to do it and be be done with it. You don't have to worry about it. And I think as lay people in the congregation, we need to be very tuned in to what you need, what you want, what you desire in order to carry out the word and sacrament.
0: Yeah, thank you, Carla. I mean, and um, just to to brag on Carla and the altar guild, I mean, that's a case in point where I just, I know that they are attuned to what's needed and they're going to take care of business. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing when the church works together that way. Let's um, continue on, because now this is where, um, and Tom already has, has brought this up, First uh, Corinthians 12, one body with many members. We really are seeing this unfolding here in Acts chapter 6, because it's, it's a recognition among the people of God there. Hey, there's more work that needs to be done. This isn't the, the job of in this case, the apostles, the, you know, kind of the forerunners of the pastors, this is a job for others of us. So can we identify um, further help within the community um, and ways that, that people can serve? So um, to return to, uh, to your handout there, um, number four, seemingly pedestrian problems, occasional spiritual service. I had fun writing that sentence. Um, seemingly pedestrian problems <laughs> occasion spiritual service. Because you see, so, you know, the apostles say, hey, we need to, to set apart these uh, men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom. And so um, what they said please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen and these other folks to serve. It's a case in point of what, as I say, Tom brought up of the body serving together. So you have Romans 12, a parallel passage that passed from 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Paul says there, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contrib- contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And on and on it goes. This gets into um, what we speak, when we talk about vocation, that as Christians, we've each been given different callings, different gifts, different ways to serve. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts, but those spiritual gifts overlap and go along with our natural gifts. It's not just like some kind of, um, we, I think we, we think of that too often as like spiritual superpowers. And you're like, well, I don't have any spiritual superpowers. I'm just good at fixing cars. Well, maybe fixing cars is your spiritual superpower, right? And to be able to do so honestly. And however God has equipped you and called you to do so um, in faith. And uh, again, our Lutheran tradition really emphasized this because Luther was responding to uh, a church and a culture where there was this sense that the priests, and even more so the the monks, they were a cut above everybody else. And the rest of us blokes were just trying to get along and hoping that maybe God would still uh, notice us once in a while. But in the 27th article of the Augsburg Confession, this article on monastic vows, makes a great point about this. It says, The precepts of God and the true service of God are obscured when men hear that only monks are in a state of perfection, or we might say only pastors or missionaries or uh, full-time church workers, what have you. For Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart and yet to conceive great faith and to trust that for Christ's sake, we have a God who has been reconciled, to ask of God and assuredly to expect his aid in all things that according to our calling are to be done. And meanwhile, to be diligent in outward good works and to serve our calling. In these things consists the true perfection, and the true service of God. So that in whatever arena you are serving, to do so um, in the power of the Spirit according to faith, and so serve your neighbor and honor the Lord. Or Luther, with his typically much more pithy way of putting it, says, God with all his angels and creatures smiles when the Christian father is washing diapers because he is doing so in faith. I find it interesting that he says the Christian father. I'm not sure if that's why God is especially smiling is because the father is doing the diapers, but um, (laughs) be be that as it may. In in these mundane tasks, we honor God. We do good works because we do so from a spirit of of faith and thankfulness to the Lord. This is the the essence of vocation in whatever area you're serving. So do you... um, do you guys feel like, do you have that, that sense of vocation that in the areas that you serve, that you're able to serve and um, do good works in that area and to honor God in there? Or do you feel like you've grown up more with a, a sense of, well, no, there's some jobs that are, are more spiritual or more necessary than others. And I'm just trying to, to make a paycheck or what have you. And there's nothing wrong, let me be clear, about making a, a paycheck of you know, tr- providing a livelihood. You might not always have that sense that oh this is some great you know spiritual work. But um, how has this sense of vocation formed or not formed your own view of of your labor and the different callings that God has placed on you? you
1: no, know, Pastor, I think you know in, in the sense that um, we've been hearing as a Lutheran, you've heard this your entire life that there's a sense of vocation and all things are valued. But it seems like you know you know do I need to go to college and get an advanced degree to uh, clean the bathrooms at church? No. Right. Although it does take some in, 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 instruction. I'll give you that. <laughs> but um, as we've tried to have our kids clean things in the house, like, <laughs> not, I, I'm sure that's not it. But uh, when, when someone spends more time and studying and getting something specifically, there seems to be more, more value to that. So like there's a set of specific skills it takes to be a pastor. It's not something that you know. We are not in a church body where we all take turns sharing a word from the from the uh, Lord. You know, we sort of. So I think that specialty aspect does have a sense to elevate it, you know, or, or to say like you know we you, you're the one amongst us who went to school and figured this out. So we we, we want to make sure that that you're not spending your your time cleaning the bathrooms not because you're above it, but because you need to spend time doing it. But I think that naturally lends to sense of more importance. To, sure. You know. And,
0: you know, and, and fair enough, just as we would accord, you know, a, a greater sense of, of honor, responsibility to, you know, the the medical profession or others who uh, make great sacrifices and, um, you know, whether it be in terms of their, their time or expenses, but um That's why I really like that Gene Veith article, though, is because it's also kind of turning that on its head a little bit, that the things that maybe we have elevated um, are not always worth elevating. You know, stuff that um, maybe just because it gets paid really well doesn't mean that it's like the most vital. Starting with, I mean, especially in our society, we don't tend to, to honor nearly as we ought the vocation of parenthood. Um, I would say, especially motherhood um, and recognizing that that is a vital role that nobody else can do. My um, teacher, I often reference uh, uh, Dr. Joel Bierman. Um, he, he would say, you know what? Your most important vocations are those ones that you do that nobody else can do. Right. And so, you know, somebody else can be pastor. Um, somebody else can do, do job, the Particular jobs that we do in almost every case, right? If not every case, um, but nobody else can truly be husband to Ann or father to these kids. That's the the most vital, important vocation that uh, I've I've been given, and that you all have been given as a spouse, as a parent or grandparent, and everything else kind of radiates out from that. Um, recognizing in each of these areas, God has equipped us and, and called us there to to serve our neighbor. So. Digressing a little bit there, but I think it's a, a worthwhile uh, digression. So, um, this vocation, we see it there among the Christians that are recognizing there's a need. It's a, a pretty, you know, mundane kind of need, but out of that arises this opportunity to um, commission and to um, send out these other servants to serve tables, to deliver food, especially to, to care for the poor. Some people have pointed to this as the um, origination of the, the office of deacon, and it doesn't make that explicit here, but it seems more or less to, to be the case. In particular, because of verse 6, where it says, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay. Now, I want to um, spend just a, a, a little bit of time with this notion of laying on of hands, because this is something that comes up more often in the New Testament than you would think and it serves um, several different functions. So this is number five on your your handout, page three. let me pull it up again for us here. Alrighty. So the laying on of hands signifies the ongoing sending of the spirit. And there's at least at least four functions the laying on of hands in the New Testament. This is just as I was uh, researching this and, and looking at this, and you might think of other things as well. Um, but let me give you at least four ways, four functions, that the laying on of hands has in the New Testament. The first is that it's, just, it's simply a continuation of the Old Testament practice. And uh, you see this many times, um, but notably in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 34, at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Torah, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, Joshua, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay. So here, there's especially that sense of the transmission of authority, uh, that now Joshua is the, the next generation. The same kind of thing, laying out of hands, happens with the, the Levites when they are sent as priests. And so that goes along with uh, another function that we'll see here in a minute. So secondly... Um, you have for prayer and healing. Um, so you know Jesus. You see this often when he is um, healing people. He's laying hands on them. Sometimes also accompanied by spit or mud. Um, but he also he advises um, the his his apostles when he sends them out in Mark 16 to so do it with the laying out of hands. But you get Acts chapter nine. The Lord said to him, this is to uh, to Saul, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, I'm sorry, to Ananias. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I think he's saying that to Saul. That's confusing. But in any event, the idea is that Ananias is going to lay his hands on Saul and, and, and uh, pray for him, and through that, um, Saul regains his sight, as we see happens uh, later in, the, in our book of Acts. A third function is, you know, just put it broadly as the invocation of the Holy Spirit. Um, so in Acts 19, you've got um, some people who had been baptized and had, but only baptized in the name of Jesus. We talked about this in an earlier study, um, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And it says, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues, and prophesying. Okay. Um, similarly in Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. So sometimes the laying out of hands is uh, especially joined with the the sending or the calling of the Holy Spirit. Um, And then fourthly, uh, the ordination and consecration to office. So Acts 14 says, when they had appointed, and that Greek word appointed literally is laid hands upon, uh, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, and elders here in the sense of pastor, presbyteros is the Greek word, Um, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then uh, later in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, alluding to Peter's ordination into the office of the ministry, the the ministry of the word. So you see these different aspects or elements of the the laying on of hands. Are there other things that that you think of when you think of laying on of hands, other things that you associate with that um, I haven't identified here? or other questions you might have about this practice of the laying out of hands. Uh, Times of illness is brought up. Yes. Um, And so in James chapter five, it talks about that of, um, for those who are sick and it goes along with the, um, the praying and, and the healing. So, um, I mean, touch is such an essential aspect of the Lord's ministry. It's one of the things that really stands out. You know, he comes across a leper and then oh, he touches the leper. But he is the one who's able to transmit that holiness and the healing. Um, and, yeah, and so it's another thing, as people point out, it's really difficult right now. We're not able to have that that ministry of of touch and care that uh, normally normally would. Other questions or thoughts about laying on of, of hands? Um, Sometimes the question is raised, well, so like in the Roman Catholic Church, ordination is regarded as a sacrament. And the laying on of hands has a kind of sacramental aspect to it. Um, We would normally say um, a sacrament is where there is like a, a visual symbol or element conjoined with the promise of God. And interestingly, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's, you know, kind of the Robin to Luther's Batman, um, he, he would be inclined to call ordination a sacrament. He didn't, he didn't mind um, using that kind of language. Again, recognizing the sacrament is a term that we've developed to describe a biblical reality. It's not a biblical word in itself. Um, the only issue comes in where it's regarded as like, you're getting some, well, in Roman Catholic language, they speak of an indelible character of the priest. So that ordination makes you like a different person. And frankly, this is part of in my opinion, what leads to a special abuses of that office because it's like you're regarded as almost above the law in a sense because you have this indelible character that is a character that can't be erased, um, uh, apart even from actually serving um, the church, serving the people of God. Uh, Patrice points out sending forth missionaries, yep, that, that commissioning, and I would say that that goes along with that um, installation of, of office, uh chips says more of the Watson to Luther Sherlock. True enough. Um delivers the forgiveness of sins in our confessional understanding,
2: Pete says. The
0: the laying out of hands, Dad? Is that what you're you're saying that
2: uh, the um uh word escapes me. Uh the um <laughs>
0: I'm
2: the confession
0: gone. and confession apps
2: are um our uh our understanding of, um, sacraments our sacramental understanding. So, and then that's the abuse of it because the, if, if ordination is a sacrament or like marriage, you know, uh, you can do no wrong once those things are in place in your life, supposedly. Yeah. delivers a a faulty understanding of what the sacraments really bring about.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So that's right. So um, the the elements of a sacrament are you've got a a physical element, promise of God, and attached with the the forgiveness of sins. And, uh, yeah, we don't see that with ordination. We don't see that with with marriage. We don't see that in a a special way with confirmation. We would say confirmation is more an extension of holy baptism, and that's what you're doing. You're confirming um, what God has already done for you in holy baptism. But again, from um, a traditional Roman Catholic perspective, a sacrament is sort of like a spiritual booster shot so that um, you know, to get married gives you like an added mm-hmm. amount of, of grace or to be ordained, you get a little, mm-hmm. a little booster shot of grace. Or we'd say, no, grace is God's unmerited favor toward you. You don't like draw it down the way you draw down your savings or something like that. It is, it's God's posture toward you. Grace, you had your hand up. You
1: have a question.
0: The booster shot of Grace.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, about she the, is Grace. About, the, about, the, about the sound effect. Is that what a booster shot sounds like? Near. We need to get someone to do some uh, some uh, sound effects for you. Right.
0: Depending what kind of needle you
1: have, I guess. <laughs> that's a mid, That's a medieval. Uh, <laughs> medieval needle.
0: That's right. Okay, I want to. I've got a couple more points about. Um, Acts 6 here, and I I want to uh, conclude this here. So verse 7 of Acts, just kind of an uh, appendage to that passage, it goes on to say, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith, meaning the the Jewish priests are now coming to to the faith as well. And so uh, to go back to your handout, number six on your handout, leadership multiplication leads to disciple multiplication. I don't think it's an accident that this um, statement in verse seven is joined with what precedes it, where now the ministry of the word um, is recognized. You've got the pastors, but we're also sending out other servants of God to continue that work insofar as pastors take more of the, the work onto themselves. It really hamstrings the growth of the ministry. And because by uh, multiplying leaders, by raising up and equipping more leaders, it leads to more disciple multiplication. And again, you go to 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also, okay? That handing on to others, training up, raising up others, discipling others to then go out and um, to, to form other people in Christian faith. And this is the essence of um, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've command you, to make disciples, form others who are going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, raising up more leaders, multiplying leaders in order to multiply disciples. See that there in Acts 6 verse 7. All right, um, let me uh, conclude with just the the last few verses, which are really just a lead in to next week as we get into Acts chapter 7. So it's sort of a, a segue um,
1: so, start with verse eight of Acts six, says, oh, yeah, "Pastor, just thing on, is I totally am with you that if you if you get more more people involved, that you can reach more people, and the and the the division of labor is good, but it does not mean that you will not continue to have problems. You know, it's, <laughs> correct? I mean, it's, you know, like the 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 uh, mundane problems or whatever are still going to be there. Yes." Know? Yes. And, and those those deacons are going to squabble and they're going to come right. to you with stuff and like, you know, so-and-so doesn't like the potato salad recipe that we have this mm-hmm. this uh, year. And so I'm just saying, like, it's not, a, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all your all your problems. No, absolutely not. You're and right. i might say it, it increases them. Sure. As, um, well, I if you're know. adding
0: more people, you're going to be adding more problems, right? I mean, this is kind of the nature of it. But um, right. seriously,
1: don't mess with the German potato salad recipe, though, Chip. Right? <laughs> I'm not getting any Sorry, idea. that was a that was a topic. But know uh, <laughs> but I think just not to belabor the point, but I think that when there are mundane problems, people often will then ascribe spiritual problems to those, and yeah. and, and they'll say, say, "Well, if we really were in a good Christian." community we wouldn't have arguments at our voters meeting or if, yeah. if this were truly what god wants to do then we wouldn't have any problems and everyone would get along so and they sort of maybe take the, the beginning of acts as like well that was a true christian community but yeah. that that lasts for like a millisecond right, right. you right. know and then they're arguing and you know the one guy's dying because he you know he's, he lied to P- peter whatever you know so it, it, I, I think it's um a fallacy to think that the our our goal even is to eliminate all problems because it's it's huh. it's un, it's unrealistic yeah. you know and it's not a sign that we're not following god's plan for us or or, or that we're not trying to be faithful
0: no I, that's a, a great point and i would even um, go so far as to say this growth is precipitated by the conflict that comes about in in the church so, it was in dealing with that mundane conflict. Well, why are you pat- you're, We're not getting uh, equal distribution to our widows and to those who are in need. That leads to the, the creation and formation of, of the deacons and the multiplication of leaders. So, it's not in the absence of the conflict that then the, the further growth of the, the mission continues, but it's precisely in the presence and by means of that. And I guess this is part of what I have in mind with um, the series that we're doing with the sermons and this whole Easter in exile theme is the idea that this is an occasion for, for us to grow, for us to grow as the, as the church, for us to grow individually as Christians, um, to, to recognize, hey, this is, we're, we're lear- discerning more deeply this characteristic of the people of God, that we are always the pilgrim people of God. And that wasn't just true, because now we're, we're under social distancing um, regulations. This has always been true, but this is just a moment to help us to, to clarify what has always been the case. Okay, let me um, conclude us with um, this, this passage from uh, verses eight through 15 of Acts 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here, again, this is just really a segue to Stephen's speech in chapter 7. But just point out here, We see already how Stephen is following in the footsteps of his Lord. That's going to become even more clear in chapter 7, but already you're seeing it. Uh, It says that Stephen was doing great signs and wonders among the people, as Jesus did, and as Jesus promised his disciples would do. It says in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. But then also he's following in the footsteps of Jesus as he has to undergo um, the slanderous accusations that are made against him. Um, so you know, people are instigating to, to come against Stephen, how he's speaking against the holy place and all those sorts of things. I mean, it's very much echoing and reminiscent of the charges that were brought against our Lord. So in Matthew 26, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, although many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Which incidentally was a true statement, but it was misconstrued uh, by uh, Jesus' opponents. So Stephen is following in those footsteps. Bottom line, last thing I want to just kind of take away from, from this passage. The essential service of the kingdom of God is to serve our neighbors in whatever calling we have been given. That great verse from Ephesians 2 following on the heels of the passage, by grace we're saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wherever we are called in whatever capacity, whether it be as pastor, whether it be as plumber, we're all given good works to do and to uh, serve God and serve our neighbors in doing them. So Thank you guys for um, joining us today. I want to remind you too, again, on Wednesday, we'll do kind of a town hall thing again over Zoom. I uh, really just want to um, check in with everybody, hear, hear how folks are doing questions they've got about our ministry going forward, especially as we're trying to figure out what's it going to look like um, in the you know, weeks and, and months to come, not to try and predict it, but just to um, anticipate, given the range of outcomes that, that are possible, um, how can we continue to strengthen our bonds as a church? Um, in the midst of this, this time. So I hope that you will join us at seven o'clock on Wednesday for that. And uh, I'll see you next week. Take care. God bless. Thank you.